Yeah, and you know, I've done my own filming, I've done my own editing. I would much rather hand off the responsibility of filming to somebody else because then I get some creativity back because I don't have to worry the whole time when I'm walking, like, okay, is this shot good? Is this shot good? My videographer does an amazing job with this. And I'll tell him sometimes we need this, we need this, we need that. And I'm confident that he'll capture it better than I can. Could I get somebody to edit better than me? Yes. Could I get someone who will see the world the exact same way I see it? No. And that's why I'm afraid to hand off the editing. I have no problem filming my own stuff, but editing will be so much harder to give away from me. I would say that it's the voice that's the most authentic to you. Basically, when you're talking through the camera, you're talking to a friend. You can look at it that way. I think a lot of people would be afraid if they said, look at this lens. That's 100,000 people watching you at once. YouTube is very different than public speaking. I did public speaking for the first time a year ago, and I was so nervous, and I don't think I did that well. I watched the recording of it. You would think that the, the two are hand in hand, but it's actually a very different thing. It's like, it's like a small performance and you just have that camera. And I actually find it a lot easier to do that because you can't see the audience there. But you, know, you look at the lens, you keep your eyes on the lens, and this is the person you're talking to. And you have to have this connection with them. So finding your most authentic voice, I think, takes time. You know, it's getting more comfortable with this idea of staring at a camera. And sooner or later, you're going to find it. It might take time, but I think any successful creator will eventually find that voice. Hello and welcome back to the Creator Nation podcast, the show where we talk to your favorite creators from around the world to find out their processes, inspirations, and journeys as creators. I'm your host, Ashwin Krishnan, and this week we have with us John Barr, the former sportscaster turned travel vlogger turned New York specialist vlogger. John has been creating content since 2016, and he's visited 33 countries thus far. That's a lot of experience with the travel vlogging game. John is especially great at creating superbly researched, highly consumable content about countries, and now especially about New York. In fact, it wouldn't be a stretch to call him a candidate for the most New Yorker New Yorker there is. In this episode, you'll learn the different types of content you can create as a travel vlogger, John's secret to creating a YouTube persona, and how you can be a travel vlogger with a 9-to-5 job. This is the Creator Nation podcast, powered by CreatorStack. I was just going through all of your videos again from the past and everything, and uh, I'm very jealous of, of your life, right? Really? Yeah, yeah. Shit, you've been to so many places, and uh, seem like you've had uh, multiple adventures in like so many sort of diverse areas in the world, right? So, so how did you get into traveling, first of all? I actually don't think I traveled that much when I was younger. I mean, a little bit with my family, but I don't think I really got the travel bug till I was doing uh, sports broadcasting. That was my first real career out of college. And, you know, when I would travel with these minor league baseball teams, I would see different parts of the country. So I think that doing these trips through these sports teams got the, the fire going a bit. And then all the free time I had between seasons, I would travel, travel, travel. And it just started from there. And I, I haven't looked back. Right, right. And did you have any sort of like travel inspirations? Like, I don't want to push you to see Anthony Bourdain, but... <laughs> You know, I, I didn't actually discover Anthony Bourdain so much until maybe right after he died and a little bit before that. I don't know if I had any particular inspiration to travel. I could tell you I had inspiration to do YouTube, but for mm -hmm. travel, I don't know if I had a specific person. It was just something that I started doing and fell in love with. 
Right, right. So it was more organic for you. It wasn't sort of planted in your head with, with an idea from somewhere else. Yeah, I think it was more organic. I just started doing it and I really liked it. And I don't know, I feel like I grew up in a, in a place in northern New Jersey, which really wasn't so exciting. I mean, nothing against the suburbs, but growing up in the suburbs, I'm sure it's great for parents, but for kids, it's a little boring. So you want to see what else is out there. So I feel like I don't know. Growing up in the suburbs of New Jersey, I wanted more and I got more when I traveled. I was just a lot more stimulated, a lot more inspired. When did you realize that you wanted to do, you know, YouTube? When, when did that sort of strike your head? Well, after I had been a professional sports broadcaster for about nine years, I had met my girlfriend in New York City, Adriana. We're now married. Yep. And yep. we decided to keep our relationship going because she was an au pair. She was a nanny in, for one year in New Jersey. And I said, let's go to Europe for a couple of months. Are you interested in coming with me? So that was part one. And she said, yes. Then a month or two later, right before the trip, I was on YouTube. And at that point, I didn't even know what vlogging was. I didn't even know that was a genre on YouTube. All I knew for YouTube was I would watch old 80s movies, music, clips, stuff like that. And I discovered this vlogger named Casey Neistat who was living in New York. He was doing daily vlogs at the time. And I saw him, I'll never forget, it was the first video. It was why American Airlines, I think, kicked him out of their program and why he was going to JetBlue and he was hanging out at an airport and he was walking on the plane and he was saying things like first and he was showing his life. And I started watching these videos and I thought, I'm going to Spain. I like to travel. I have a background in broadcasting. I think I could do this. So I bought a camera and the rest is history. Right, right, right. I feel like Casey Neistat basically just gave birth to a whole generation of dreams that way just with being how cool he was on camera? I think at the time, I didn't realize how much work went into it. I didn't realize how many years this guy busted his tail, had an HBO show, had a background in directing and cinematography and everything. I had none of that background. So, I mean, I feel like I had a really steep learning curve, but he just made it look easy. I feel like Anyone who's at the top of their game, they make it look easy and that's what draws you in. But then when you actually start to do it, you realize it's a heck of a lot harder than you originally thought. Right, right. Fair enough. Yeah, he did make it. Uh, that's definitely part of his appeal, right? Just how simple and cool and sort of like well-made everything was at the end of it. Uh, but were there any sort of other creator inspirations that you had while starting off? Or was it just Casey? I would say it was just Casey to get the ball rolling. I mean, looking back on it, I watched other travel vlogging channels. I wouldn't really have considered Casey Neistat a travel vlogger. And at the time, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a travel vlogger, not a New York vlogger. That kind of came later, but I wanted to be a travel person. So Casey was more in the, in the daily vlogging niche. And what I didn't realize then was what made Casey Neistat so good was he had a really interesting life. Someone living in a really boring place doing boring things normally you're not going to want to watch. But, you know, this guy was interesting without the YouTube channel. So he was really the big influence. I, I'd say by far I watched him the most when I got started. Let's sort of like uh, get the chronology on this, right? So this is 2015 or 2016? Or 20 this, was 20, this was about the spring of 2016. Right. And that's when you decided you wanted to be a travel vlogger. Yeah, that was when I decided I, I wanted to try. I'm like, I have this big trip coming up. Huh? Why don't I document what it's like going to Spain for a couple of right. months? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I have a question, right? Like how exactly does one go about sort of figuring out what is the most important bits of a travel experience to sort of document? Like for me, it is, uh, I might go to a place and not particularly sort of take note of the food or the people or just even like the places to look at. But I will sort of make a note of all the experiences I've had. Like maybe if I've climbed a rock that, uh, at the place or maybe like I've cycled down a mountain, you know, stuff like that, right? That's what really sort of uh, stays with you. What, what's that for you? What's your traveling philosophy? As far as creating content around travel, it's so diverse. You can attack this in many different directions. And I, I've done it all, which isn't always the best thing for a YouTube channel. You know, I'll give you an example, and this is a great creator. There's, there's a guy named Walter's World. I don't know if you've heard of him. And he, all his content pretty much is it's stuff like 10 things to know before visiting Malta, 10 things to know, 10 things that will shock you. It's just list-style content, and he'll stand somewhere, and there'll be B-roll behind him. If you're very consistent, YouTube loves that. But for me, it gets a little boring to do that. So that's one style, just being extremely informative. We can go in the reverse – and we could just have what you were describing, more experiential content. And an example of this was a video that, I, that did pretty well a year ago called First Impressions of Oaxaca, Mexico. So I'm not really coming in there as an expert in Mexico. I'm coming in as this is this city that's getting kind of popular. Let's go experience it together and I'm going to react. And there's whole genres of foreigners reacting to other countries. That does very well, particularly outside of the United States. And I know that you're in India. That's a huge thing in India. Foreigners' first impressions of Taj Mahal, 100,000 views maybe. That's another way to do it. Or you could do things like guide videos where we're going to experience things, but I'm talking to you more as the expert. So uh, top 10 things to do in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I actually made that video, did very well. And that's where experiencing it. I'm talking about it, but I'm coming to you as you're coming here, do these things. So there's so many different ways that you, you could come across a travel video and I like to do them all. I would say what tends to do best for me though, are the guide videos where I say 10 things to do for your first time in New York city. So that's what does best, but I have the most fun doing more of the experiential content of, Oh my God, it's the first time. Let's, let's go do this together. Yeah, definitely. Your videos are among the best researched videos on New York city for sure. But even the other uh, countries and everything, yours do very well researched. Thank and you. Took me I appreciate that. it. Yeah, so run me through like what uh, your process looks like, right? Let's say you were traveling, you said to Mexico. What does a day in the life of creating content in Mexico look like for you? I mean, it, it depends on what we're doing and it depends where we are. So I, I just came back from Mexico. I went, uh, my wife's family is from Mexico. So I go there at least once a year, maybe twice a year. This trip, I just did really simple vlog style content. And with vlog style content, what I've seen, it's more about your reactions and finding things in the moment that are interesting versus videos that I plan out more. Like I, I literally, ha I filmed three videos on Sunday and these are all the notes that I have before Whoa. I even shot the video. I have a yes, lot of There's notes about like three pages of notes that he just showed up to the camera. This was three different videos. This was four pages of right. double-sided notes that I had researched on the, on the topics that I was covering. So it depends on what the video is. I'll take you through each one. If it's, if it's just a vlog, I might say, what are we going to do? I'd at least like to have some kind of a plan of this day. Occasionally, I won't do that. But I've seen that if I plan out stops, the video will likely do better than if I just say, we're in Tulum, Mexico. Let's go walk around. 
Some people can pull that off. I think if you have a very extroverted personality, which I don't have, I'm a little more introverted, you could just walk around without a plan and start you know, flipping your camera on locals or people and have conversations and make it really dynamic. I like to plan things a little bit more than that. So if we're in Tulum, Mexico, I might say first impressions of Tulum, but I'm going to have a few places that I want to cover that I know have some interest. Like, okay, we're going to go to this cafe, which is vegan because everyone in Tulum is now vegan or gluten-free. And then I'm going to say, this is the most popular beach. Is it worth the hype? We'll keep walking. So I might have a little day plotted, but I'll keep it very flexible. And if something comes up that I didn't plan, I might throw it into the video. If I walk by a little fruit stand that looks interesting, I might stop and film it. I plan a lot, but I keep things open. If I'm doing a guide video, though, I plan it a lot more. And depending on what the style is, I, I might have a few points that I want to make. And then when I get there and I see something new or I observe something, I'll add that to whatever I had planned. And this is an example in New York. I did a video about hidden gems in New York. So I knew all the places we we're going to. I don't like to script. I like to paraphrase because I have a background in, in television and radio broadcasting. So I can paraphrase really well. So we went to, for example, a store excuse me, that was selling Broadway actors and producers wigs and boas and scarves and feathers. So I'm outside the store. I have some information about them, but I'm going inside the store and experiencing it as well. So I say, guys, look at this. Look at all the bright feathers they're selling to Broadway shows. Imagine you have a costume party. Come to this store. Check this out. And I'll grab something and I'll show it to the camera. So the whole Guide will be plotted, but I will leave it open to those cool moments that people want to see. So those are really like the two types of videos I do. And then there's a third one where I'm just strictly giving you advice. And that's going to be 90% pre-written. And I'll paraphrase off of that. I do a lot of videos like that too, especially about New York where I have a lot more expertise. You know, I just filmed a video titled, Moving to New York if you're broke, 12 tips. That was almost entirely pre-scripted and a couple of things I threw in on the fly, but it was mostly pre-scripted. So I'm not one of those creators who does just one thing. I need different types of content to keep me fresh and motivated. Stimulated, right. I feel like your history with sports broadcasting really gives you a sort of unfair advantage with uh, having a sort of extroverted personality uh, on camera. How would oh. you recommend somebody, somebody who doesn't have that learn that? You know, it's interesting because a lot of people think I have a huge advantage coming into YouTube, having a background in broadcasting, but there's a few things to consider here. One, I was on the radio for most of my career, but I had almost zero experience with video production, actually holding a camera, actually editing, and those are huge. But you want to know about the on-camera presence. I will tell you the first few times that I held the camera in front of my face like this was so awkward and I did not sound very confident. I sounded like I was trying to put on this broadcastery thing. So if you watch my first, I don't know, five to 10 videos, it's like, this is a sports broadcaster who's trying to be a YouTuber. And I actually don't think that was a good thing for most people. When they get into content creation, They've got to bring up their energy a little bit. I had to bring it down. I'm a little bit unique in that. I was too broadcastery, and it almost sounded fake. 
where it sounded like this is too much of a, of a TV show host. And I feel like with YouTube, they want a little bit more authenticity to what you're doing. So I had to tone it down. But my advice for anybody, it's going to be scary. It was even scary for me. I didn't have a camera guy for the first four years. I'm holding this thing myself on a tripod. I was not comfortable doing it for a while. It's like anything. You have to keep doing it. And eventually, you're going to have to find out or you're going to have to study ways to project your voice a little bit more, to look more confident on camera. I think anybody could learn to project a bit. This was something that I had no problem with. I was always extremely loud. I remember I went on another school's broadcast once and, and the producer said, okay, you're the rare person. I got to put the dial down for you. You're really loud. I'm like, okay. So I never had a problem being loud. I think some people need to learn to project a little bit more to kind of you know, learn breathing. There's so many YouTube videos on how to sound more professional, but you don't have to overdo it. Just, just being natural. And I think more importantly, sounding confident is the most important thing for content creators. If you sound confident, people will buy into what you're saying. And it's very hard to fake that confidence if you're not actually knowledgeable about what you're saying. So according to you, it's a combination of knowing what you're talking about and practice. Practice in just keeping yeah. your voice and sort of sounding authoritative slash confident. And I think finding your voice too, if that's a thing, because I think it takes right. people a long time. I don't think I was really comfortable with my YouTube voice, my style for, for years. Like I, I feel like that took years and years to develop to see what would work and what people liked. And again, I had to tone it down. Most people are the opposite. They got to bring it up a bit. Right. Right. Can we sort of unpack that? Like, how does one go about finding the voice? I know it's a bit of a out there, that question, but I think it's an important sort of facet of being a YouTuber, right? Like sort of really understanding which part of yourself you want to show to your audience. How do you, how do you go about doing that? I would say that it's the voice that's the most authentic to you. Basically, when you're talking to the camera, you're talking to a friend. You could look at it that way. I think a lot of people would be afraid if they said, look at this lens. That's 100,000 people watching you at once. YouTube is very different than public speaking. I did public speaking for the first time a year ago. And I was so nervous. And I don't think I did that well. I watched the recording of it. You would think that the, the two are hand in hand, but it's actually a very different thing. It's like, you're, it's like a small performance and you just have that camera. And I actually find it a lot easier to do that because you can't see the audience there. But you, know, you look at the lens, you keep your eyes on the lens and this is the person you're talking to. And you have to have this connection with them. So finding your most authentic voice, I think, takes time. You know, it's getting more comfortable with this idea of staring at a camera. And sooner or later, you're going to find it. It might take time, but I think any successful creator will eventually find that voice and they'll stick with it and they'll know that it works. And then this is the voice that people know you for. And I'm not even saying it's a certain tone or it's a certain volume. It's just a style. It's something that you have. Right. I think that's a really important tip, right? Sort of treating the camera lens as your friend and talking to it as a friend. Exactly. Yeah. It's your audience, even though it's the audience you don't see, but you know it's there. Quick question. How long do you take to edit one of your videos? It depends on the style of video, honestly. Um, yeah. I feel like my vlogs take a bit longer to edit because there's a lot of moving parts and I might not include everything. So... With a vlog, I kind of have to watch everything a little bit more. If it's a guide video and it's a little bit more pre-scripted, then I know where the good parts are. I just need a little B-roll to cover it. So that process is a little more straightforward. 
where if you do a vlog, I might watch it and say, nah, this part was a little weird. This didn't make sense. This doesn't move the story along. I'm literally doing this right now with a video, but with, with a guide video, with something a little bit more straightforward. I know what I have and I just have to go edit it and, and add a little B-roll. So I would say, you know, a, a vlog could take like five to seven hours to edit or a guide video that's pretty straightforward could take like two, three hours, maybe, maybe four. Right. So if it's sort of unscripted, it takes a longer time. Do you still uh, edit all of your videos yourself? Yeah, I edit 99.9% .9 of my videos. I had my camera guy edit one of my videos once just for fun. And I had a friend of mine edit my wedding video because I was in Mexico and I didn't want to be bogged down with it. So that was just because I didn't have the time to edit the video. I'm not opposed to hiring an editor, but I just don't think I need it right now. I really like editing. You know, that's something that a lot of creators are either afraid of or they dread. But for me, editing is a very important part of the process. I like to be involved in the entire creative process. And editing is truly where you give birth to this creation. So I love picking and choosing those moments that the viewers are going to enjoy. And I feel like I have a very good eye for this after all these years. Like, what are the little things that they're going to be interested in? So I feel like if I gave it to somebody else, they wouldn't see it the same way I did. And I'd be afraid that I would have to do too many new cuts. I'd be too much of a perfectionist about it. When I edit it, this is my creation and it's, I take full responsibility. Yeah. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> Why is that? I feel it is one of those things that every creator should take complete responsibility of. Just it's the most personalized bit of the whole creation in my opinion. Like you can take uh, as many shots as you want in different sort of locations and everything. But when it comes down to it, the film is made on the editing table. So yeah, that's why. Yeah. And you know, I've done my own filming. I've done my own editing. I would much rather hand off the responsibility of filming to somebody else because then I get some creativity back because I don't have to worry the whole time when I'm walking. Like, okay, is this shot good? Is this shot good? My videographer does an amazing job with this. And I'll tell him sometimes we need this, we need this, we need that. And I'm confident that he'll capture it better than I can. Could I get somebody to edit better than me? Yes. Could I get someone who will see the world the exact same way I see it? No. And that's why I'm afraid to hand off the editing. But for the filming, I know I'm, a, I'm mediocre at best at filming. I, I'll never be a professional videographer. I don't think anyone's ever going to hire me because I'm going to make them a travel film that's going to make them cry based on how perfect all the shots are. I can film fine, but I'm not someone who's obsessive about a gimbal and about those smooth shots. I just want to get it done. I would rather outsource that to somebody better. I have no problem filming my own stuff, but editing will be so much harder to give away for me. Yeah, that's a really good insight, man. I feel like that's something anybody who's starting off with this could use, you know, sort of uh, understanding that the filming process is one you could give away while the editing process is the one that you should keep close to you, play it uh, closer to your chest. I'm not saying that you can't give away editing. Look, I joke with my wife that if we ever had kids, that might be a time where I may give away some editing <laughs> responsibilities. I have the time right now to dedicate to it, but I'm sure that if I didn't have the time, I would be one of those people that would take meticulous notes. Like, we need this, 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 put it together. I just think for any beginner, learning how to edit is so valuable. Learning how to shoot is valuable too. I think ideally you should be doing everything by yourself at first, but if it's not possible, I would rather give away the filming than the editing. 
Right, right. Makes sense. Let's move on to how you get your ideas for your videos, right? You sort of work backwards based on what your subscribers uh, ask for or, uh, you know, how do you go about it? It's tough to find out exactly what your subscribers are asking you for because the few people that may have a video idea that's probably not enough of a sample size. I think the proof is in the pudding. The first thing I would tell any creator in any niche is go put your computer on incognito mode and whatever your niche is. Let's say for me, it's New York City. I'll put New York travel, NYC, New York. I'll start looking at YouTube and like what videos are doing the best. This was one of the best things I ever did for my channel to really supercharge it. I looked at the top performing videos about New York City and I thought to myself, what can I do differently here, but keep it in the same realm? Like I saw tons of videos of New York City tips, New York City scams, best places to eat, a 24-hour itinerary. I've actually never done that video, but things like that. And I just started jotting down notes. And within the course of six months, I went out and I created almost every single high-performing video that I saw about New York. Now, I didn't use everything those creators used. My style was very different. But I know that these videos were getting a lot of views and people were interested in it. And that's what really helped me is doing that homework. Now, years later, I can't really do that because I've covered a lot of the big topics in New York. I can always go back and redo them. Now it's more about understanding the audience and going through my library and saying, okay, this video did well. Why did it do well? So for example, I did a video about the Edge Sky Deck in New York. This was right before everything closed for COVID. It's the newest observation deck in New York City. It got half a million views. It's because people are interested in what's new. People are always interested in that. So with that knowledge, anytime there's something really interesting and new in New York, I'm pretty confident that I can make a video about it and get a lot of views. I made a video about the new train station. It got 60,000 views in a month. So it's, it's looking at your past successes and seeing if you can model that on future content. That helps me a lot. Other times it's like, what neighborhoods haven't I covered yet? It's a little, it's easier and it's harder because I know New York very well. But then again, if you sent me to 10 different cities around the world to make videos, I immediately have five videos I can make. I immediately have five videos. I could do top 10 things to do, biggest tourist traps, things to know, five best food places, cheap eats. I can literally recreate my best New York videos in other cities and I know that it would be successful. So it's kind of finding that formula and then fine tuning it down the line. Do you have like a list of ideas that you have to work through and then you choose the best one? Or Yeah, sometimes I'll just sit down when I have nothing else to do and, I, and I'll create ideas. And I've seen other channels talk about this, the really big channels like the Mr. Beast, how I'll spend hours researching and picking their video topics because in the end, sometimes the topic is the most important thing. Assuming you know how to execute, assuming that you're a creator that has an audience, if you don't have an audience, you have the ability to be compelling with it. But the hardest part of YouTube is finding the right video title and the right concept. I think that's 50% of the battle is picking a good topic and having a good thumbnail and title, of course, but like the topic choices, that's really, really big. Because I've made videos before, which I thought were great. I completely bombed on YouTube. Just because it wasn't a topic my audience was interested in, or for whatever reason, you have to know what topics the audience wants or what they'll respond to. And that, those are the sorts of videos that I'll start jotting down. Like I have a list right now 
of some videos I want to create, which I think will do well, but we, we never know until we actually hit that publish button. I, I think you're getting a little bored of New York City, right? Regardless of how attached you are to the, to the place, you are sort of getting, a, a, a sort of news is wearing off, right? How do you find yeah. to, you know, go after it every day and make new content about the same place over and over? Well, I'm very fortunate that I live in New York City. I mean, how many cities in the world can you really say I could go explore a new neighborhood every single day for months and months and probably find new things to cover? There's very few cities. You would have to be in a world city like a London, a New York, maybe a Paris, I don't know, a Hong Kong, a Tokyo. You would have to be in a huge mega city with so many different stories going on constantly Yes, I yearn to travel, but I also realize that most of my viewers are here for New York. I would be naive to think that I could just go anywhere and make a video when 90% of my library is about New York City. So I yearn to travel. I will travel more. I did four videos in Puerto Rico. They got 100,000 views each. I really want to go back there. And I feel like I'm always going to mix in some travel but for this channel to be successful, New York City has to be the bread and butter content. And I, I understand that. And I'm fortunate that I could think of 10 different neighborhoods right now that I could just go do videos for in the future that will probably do well that I've never covered. And because it's New York, there's always something new. There's always something new. I could literally have a channel just about new things in New York City or current event topics, which I'm doing now. What's reopening? Stuff like that, that it's... Difficult to get bored here. I miss travel, but I wouldn't say that I'm bored of New York City. It's not like I'm, I'm covering Kansas City, Missouri, I don't know, and it, you just might run out of ideas. New York, well, you'll probably never run out of ideas here. Right, 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 right. I think your love for the, for the city is pretty inspirational. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> when did you realize that you had to niche down on New York City and that was a viable strategy to go about creating content? And do you think it's something that more creators should aspire to do? Like sort of like niche down on one place? I think it's, it's up to the creator and it's also up to your lifestyle. One of the issues that I had in my first two years on YouTube, I would say 75% of my content was non-New York City. And it came to the point for me where I realized if you want to be a travel vlogger on YouTube, you need to constantly be traveling all the time. There is a little hack here, which I've seen some creators do. And if I ever wanted to really be a travel creator again, purely a travel creator, I would do this. And that's go to a location for two weeks and make 10 videos and spread those videos out over a couple of months. That's the only way I could sustain myself being a travel creator. But back then, I never even thought of that. I was just getting burned out from traveling so much that people are watching you because they're going to different countries. And then there were certain frustrations where I was in Mexico for four months and I built up a nice audience there. And then I went back to New York and then I went to Japan. And I think because of the timing, the audience wasn't interested because most of them are watching me for Mexico content. So I went to Japan and my videos bombed for a month, almost all of them. I was also a little bit tired of that, of feeling like I could only go to certain countries that would get more views. And I know which countries they are. There's a lot of countries out there that you travel to, you make content and the people of these countries are super patriotic and they love their cultures. And you'll get a lot of views in those countries versus, you know, going to Pennsylvania. I don't think I would get as many views in Pennsylvania as I would in the Philippines, for example. And, and that's fine. But once I started doing New York content and seeing that I could get those views in my backyard, that I could reappreciate my own city, 
I think anybody could do a channel about their own city, but it would be a lot harder if it wasn't a big city or a place that had a lot of tourist interest. So in the United States, I would say a channel about Las Vegas, about New York City, about Orlando, themed around Disney. Those three would be the best. But look, I have a friend. He makes videos almost strictly about San Diego. Shout out to Jay Cation if he's listening. He's doing great. San Diego's not the top, top, top tourist destination in the U.S., but they have a lot of interest. I know another guy who's doing videos about Chicago. I know another guy who's just doing Washington, D.C. And the great thing about niching down in your home city is that you build up such a big library that the travel vloggers will never be able to compete with that, most of them, because once people get hooked on your content, you know, you could spend two, three hours watching all my New York videos, maybe more, depending on what your interests are. I can only make so many videos in Puerto Rico in four days. So there's major advantages to niching down, but I ultimately think it comes down to your lifestyle. And I didn't see myself as a full-time traveler. I never did. I got started through travel vlogging and I'll always do some travel vlogging, but it's never going to be something I could see myself doing full-time as I get older, as I want to start a family someday. I just don't think I could travel 10 months, eight months out of the year like I used to. Right, 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 right. So it all depends on your lifestyle and you know, what your lifestyle really needs. But did you say you were traveling for eight months, a year? I think, whew, I think at one point, I don't know if it was eight months, it was at least six, it was in one 12-month span, I spent six of those 12 months outside of New York. It might not have been six months straight, it was something like four months Mexico, one month or two months New York, one month Japan, one month New York, one month here, it was jumping around, but it was in a 12-month span, I was gone six months. And quite frankly, I got burned out. Even living in one location for a few months still, when you have that suitcase in the closet and you know in a month you're going to pack it again, I don't know. I, I love taking a trip every month, of course, but it doesn't necessarily have to involve a passport. Right, right. I think that's what a lot of people get wrong about traveling. I think it's always going to be novel. It's always going to be rewarding. But I think after perhaps like the first month of constantly jumping, there is a sort of opportunity cost to it. Yeah, I mean, how much can you really see a city in two or three days? And the other issue with like creating the content that I create is I used to travel differently when I didn't document everything. I was maybe a little bit less stressed. I feel like now when I travel, I have this pressure to bring my camera with me to document everything. Now there's certain trips I'll take with Adriana where I say, we're only going to vlog one day. We're going to have a few days off. I think I've actually learned to appreciate travel more in a sense that I videotape everything because I realize it's going to be stressful, but we're going to make content and then we're going to have two days off where we do nothing or I edit. So I think when you make travel vlogging your lifestyle, there's a lot of pressure to constantly be creating and constantly be going out. And I learned to appreciate those moments where there's no camera and I'm just there and I'm present. Sometimes it's very hard to be present when you have to film everything. Right, right. Perils of the profession, huh? Let's hear about the journey again. Sort of your journey from zero to a thousand subs, from thousand to 10,000, and from 10,000 to 100K, right? Which part of that was the most memorable for you and which part was the hardest? Let's start with the memorable. Memorable would probably be zero to a thousand. Because I went from, I think, 300 subscribers to 2,000 subscribers in under a week because I had one video blow up. 
And I never understood the power of YouTube and how quickly a channel could grow based on the merits of just one video until it happened to me. And the story is, I filmed a video in Queens called Little Manila, New York's Best Kept Secret. At the time, my channel was very small. And I went to Cuba a few days later. So the video didn't really pick up steam. So mind you, in Cuba, getting access to internet is very difficult. So I am at my Casa Particular, which is a guest house in Cuba. And I have to ask nicely to the owner if I can use his computer to quickly check my email. And I check my email. And back then, I had subscriber notifications on. I had four pages of new subscriber, new subscriber. And I thought, what is going on here? And I went to my channel and it said 70,000 views, Little Manila. And I'm like, whoa. And it was just an explosion of comments from the Philippines because the, the people in the Philippines absolutely ate this video alive. I don't think anyone ever covered this place. It's a small little micro neighborhood in Queens. So that was the most memorable because I never knew that one video that gets 100,000 views could boost you one or 2,000 subscribers almost overnight. I would say the hardest is going from 10,000 to 100,000 because there's a lot more valleys than peaks. I think mm -hmm. what happens on the journey from 10,000 to 100,000 is you really start to find out what content works. And there's a lot of disappointment during that journey of this video bomb, this video bomb, this video bomb. And then all of a sudden, okay, this one took off. Why did it take off? Can we make something similar? And then you start to batch it and you start to make serial content based on similar topics. And for me, my channel jumped over 100,000 from New York City, 100%. It's because tourism in New York City was up a lot. I had a lot of binge-worthy content of scams and tips and best places to go. And people got sucked into my ecosystem. And it was like a little snowball and it kept going and going and going and going. And it was just like, bam, 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 bam. And I actually have not gotten that momentum since. My channel really got hammered after COVID. I lost a lot of viewers. They're coming back now. They're coming back. But I really suffered for the first six months starting this past March. But I would say the hardest was 10,000 or 100,000 because there's a lot of just failures and you feel like you've tasted success and you want to repeat the success. Once I tasted success, I wasn't turning back. I think it's a lot harder when you're just starting out and you're not getting any views to keep that faith that you know your content's good, but nobody else knows it yet versus, okay, I've had a lot of views before. I'm not going to stop like I do 100,000. I'm still not stopping, but I hope that made sense. That was a little bit of a ramble. No, no. I think it, it, a lot came through. I think more valleys than peaks and just sort of like pushing forward despite not seeing results is something yeah. that really sort of, you know, you have to double down on, on your confidence in your own content, right? Yeah. So I've heard tell that you have a couple of internet businesses which uh, you use to sort of, uh, you know, you funnel money from there and that's how you sort of like go ahead with your passion with YouTube. Is this something that you think like uh, more people should uh, go ahead with? like have a secondary source of income? Of course. I mean, let me tell you, I didn't really make good money. When I say good money, I would say enough money to survive in New York City. And, and by no means is my YouTube channel buying me a penthouse apartment. It took me, I don't even think I got a paycheck from YouTube for the first two years. That was actually noticeable. That was more than a few dollars. It takes years and years to build up. So I think having a side hustle you know, having like an e-commerce business, selling stuff on Amazon, Shopify, anything you can do 
I would be very cautious to tell somebody, jump into YouTube full time, quit all your other jobs, you're going to make it. Some people may say that. I would say don't quit your day job, whatever it is. Keep some source of income going. And then as your money goes up, you can think about going full time. But I never would have considered YouTube as a full time thing right away because the money's not going to be there. Unless you save up a lot of money somehow and you say, I want to take a year off, maybe that would work if you have a lot of money saved up and you say, I'm going to give this a year all my attention. That's not really feasible for most people. So I would say, even if you work a nine to five job and you want to be a travel creator, go make content on the weekends, go make content after work, go take a big trip and batch it. If I was a travel vlogger and I only had two weeks off a year, I would travel for two weeks and make two videos a day. And that would be 28 pieces of content that literally could last you months and months just as a random sample. So I think you can make it work, but YouTube takes a lot of time. And this is not to take anything away from Instagram or TikTok. I can make a TikTok in like 15 minutes, but a YouTube video takes so much longer. It's a big commitment of your time. So you have to be ready for that. Right, right, right. But I think that's a useful hack, right? Sort of like just travel during the weekends and then make content with your sort of filming from then. Would you, would you say that you, you would go with YouTube only as your primary platform now, knowing that TikTok is also out there? It's hard for me to answer that question because I'm so biased to YouTube and, and performing well on YouTube and seeing my content on TikTok doing so poorly. I feel like if I could tell you the ideal thing, it would be to do everything. See what performs best. But I think starting out now, TikTok is so powerful. And learning how to create a video and make it interesting in 30 seconds to a minute in a lot of ways is harder than making a video interesting on YouTube for 10 minutes. Here's why. On YouTube, no one's ever going to watch all 10 minutes. Even my best performing videos for 10 minutes is six minutes of watch time. I've heard stories that there's creators that can get 70 to 80% retention on a 10-minute video. I would love to get there someday. But on YouTube, I think there's this expectation that there's going to be moments which people will fast forward. When you're doing short-form content, out of the gate, the first two seconds have to catch your attention. On a YouTube video, I would never tell somebody, your first two seconds got to be good. Your first 10 seconds have to be good for sure. I think in some ways it's harder to be good on TikTok. I think it's harder because there's a lot more competition. A lot more people are willing to try it because there's a bit less investment of your time. So I think if you can do well on TikTok, then if I can make one minute interesting, I could definitely make 10 minutes interesting because we could just break it down. And I know a creator who's very successful on both TikTok and YouTube and I watch his YouTube videos now and I see them and I, and I think to myself, he's doing really well here because he knows how to edit each little clip in a way where it feels like it's a TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. He's very good at moving. I struggle with this still. I come from the old school of media. I came from the journalism world where it's very strange for me to do two second cuts all the time. I find it odd, but I also understand that it's important that attention spans have gone down. Honestly. And I hate to say this as a YouTuber, I think in some ways being a very successful TikToker right now could be more valuable because there's more attention there. And you could always turn that into a YouTube channel, just making what you're doing longer, where when you come from my perspective, I'm used to long form content to cut things up so short 
it feels sacrilegious. It feels like I'm killing my content. Like, can I really condense this? So I would say do everything, try everything. But ultimately, TikTok may be the future right now. And it may be a better way to start, especially if you don't have the time available to commit to a YouTube channel. Right. I think that's super valuable. Just big value bomb you just dropped there, dude. I, I think uh, from what I gather, I think the best strategy would be to get on TikTok just to sort of gather a fan base plus learn how to edit and make your uh, video seem as engaging as possible in a one minute time span and then just transfer those skills and your audience to YouTube. Well, I would say I would be careful about that. And I've heard a lot of big YouTube experts say, don't try too hard to push your TikTok audience to YouTube because we have to remember these are two different styles of audience. People that go to YouTube, they want to sit there for 10, 15, 20 minutes and watch a few videos. People on TikTok want to go quick. So I've seen some TikTok creators doing some good New York City content. I go to their YouTube channels. They have 500 subscribers because their content is not doing well for the long form audience, which is fine for them. Granted, there's more money on YouTube right now. And that's what I would say that if you're successful on YouTube outside of brand deals, the CPMs are much better on YouTube. There's a lot more money to be made on YouTube. It's not impossible. It happens. But for most people, that audience you have on TikTok, they want to stay on TikTok. Whatever you're doing, keep them on the platform. Similarly with YouTube, I've gained some Instagram following, but most people on YouTube are not going to run to my TikTok videos. I feel like those are two different audiences, but I do agree with you. Starting on TikTok would make more sense. And what you could do on TikTok is you could see what topics work in your niche and then go make that video longer on YouTube. I think that's where the value is for TikTok versus YouTube and and transitioning is take your top 10 TikToks and go turn them into YouTube videos somehow and use those audience retention tactics that you gained. Make it longer, but edit in the way you're editing to stretch it out. Right. So you did mention brand deals, right? So how do you go about getting a brand deal? Like the ones that you want to get? So I'm the type of creator that's going to tell you, don't go looking for brand deals. They'll find you. The issue I have with writing companies is if you look at it from a power dynamic, they have most of the power. Even if I can help them, and I'm telling you people will disagree with me on this, for one, you're going to have to write 50 to 100 companies to find one that's going to want to pay you. Let's say you have a decent following. You're going to get a lot. You're going to be ignored constantly. I get ignored. Look, I even get ignored after all these years from businesses that I'm willing to do a free video just to get them on my channel to showcase something, I still get ignored. And I have almost 200,000 subscribers. If I went out looking for companies, I feel like they might not value me in the same way. And they would, if they wanted to pay me, not pay me the money that I would want versus somebody that comes to you and they've seen your content and they like your content and they know your value. I have leverage there because if they offer me less than I want, I say, no, I can't, I need more money. And you could generally, if they come to you, push for a little more money and get that money if they really like you versus it's outbound sales. It's going to be a lot of ignores, a lot of rejections. You might get lucky and it could work for you. But for me, for my brand deals, I have let them come to me and they found me. I haven't done a ton of brand deals, but the ones I've done that I've agreed with, have, have I thought been very good, have been lucrative enough or it was worth my time. So I'm in the school of thought of wait for them to come to you, build up your brand first, where 
they'll be knocking on your door and you're not coming to them. Right, right, right. So just get so good that they can't ignore you. And then... And that's what, that's what Casey Neistat said. I remember he said it first. I wasn't sure about that. I disagreed with it. I said, no, no, I want to get paid. I want to get paid. And I tried reaching out to companies and it was either you don't have enough subscribers or we'll do it for free for an affiliate link. And it was just, I felt like my time could have been spent better. Now, if I had a manager, which I don't, or an agency, which I don't, and they were doing outbound sales for me, I'd be cool with that, but I just don't want to spend my own time on it. I guess when you're starting off or until you've grown to a certain extent, just stick to what you're doing and let them come to you, right? Yeah, that's what I would say. So do you have any sort of North Star brands that you want to work with? You know, there actually was one brand that I wanted to work with. It was a shoe company. They're called Born Shoes. They have the most comfortable shoes ever for walking. And when I go around New York, I walk a lot. So I even made a video thinking, I'm going to show how good this company is. And I'm going to say why this is my favorite shoe for walking around New York. And all the, the logic in the world says, do this for them and tweet them. And I did it. And we got in contact, but it never went anywhere. So I would say I would like to promote stuff that I actually use as a New Yorker all the time. So like good footwear. I'm not really a fashion person, so I couldn't say like a certain fashion company. Maybe some famous of places, like good food spots, really cool hotels I would like to work with, more in the hospitality industry than I would say in, in branding. But I worked with a company recently that does laundry pickup. I worked with a company that does like selling your old stuff called Mercari. I don't really have one particular brand I'm interested in, but it would always have to be something that I would find fun and useful. Right, something that you sort of authentically believe in, right? Yeah, I get these emails sometimes, hey, we want to promote our game on your channel and I won't even respond. Like no one, like people aren't watching me for my gaming knowledge for League of Legends or whatever. I don't know if it wasn't them, but any of these games, like there's other channels that do that. Like I'm not going to put my name behind something that has nothing to do with my brand at all. Right. You hear that League of Legends? Find somebody else. John Barr is not interested. No, John Barr is not interested in League of Legends. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back to money, uh, can I ask how much you make monthly from YouTube? I know it's generally not a sort of stable number, but is there like a general number you can give us? Um, I mean, you know, honestly, I couldn't give you one number. I mean, it, it just depends on the month. I don't want to give away my numbers exactly, if that's okay, right. but I would give you a range of numbers. Right. A creator and my size would probably make between $2,000 to $6,000, $7,000 a month, maybe a little higher, a little lower, just on right. AdSense, depending on their audience. And I have an American audience mostly. So I would right. say in a good month, you could be looking at like one and a half, two thousand to four, five thousand, six thousand on like holidays. You need to talk about other sources of income. Yeah, sure. All of it put together. Yeah, I mean, you know, brand deals. If you get a brand deal for the month, for me, it could look at like five hundred to two thousand dollars a month on that. If I'm lucky, I don't do tons of brand deals. Patreon's a bit more stable for fan funding. I think I've averaged. 700 to a thousand extra dollars a month based on that. But when, you know, again, when you add it all up, it's not crazy money. I'm not making six figures off my YouTube channel. I would love to get there this year or next year. That's a goal of mine. I never set out to create this brand. Honestly, my YouTube channel was a hobby to start. I never thought I'd get to a hundred thousand or if I did, I never actually like realistically thought it would happen. And 
I never expected to be making as much income as I have, but now I'm trying to focus more and more as I've been in this almost five years to see what seek we make this a six figure brand. I think the answer is yes. But again, five years ago, I think it was a lot harder to launch a career on YouTube than it is now. I think YouTube is a lot more credibility these days. There's also a lot more competition. So yeah. Yeah. Like I guess with one comes the other, right? Last couple of questions. Are there any sure. um, daily processes that you can recommend to a, a creator to stay motivated and inspired on this journey? I would say have video ideas written down always. And I'm not the best at this. If I know that there's five videos that need to be made and they're written down on a file or maybe even better written down on a piece of paper next to your computer, if I know they have to be made and I can make them then they're going to be created. If I write it down, I have to finish it. So I think if you always had a list of future video ideas, it would keep you motivated even when nobody's watching. That's one to keep motivated. Another thing I do is I'm still a student of YouTube. I still like watching channels that talk about YouTube growth. I'm a big fan of a guy named Daryl Eves. There's other good ones, Roberto Blake. They give you some inspiration. They talk about other channels. I think one thing that could discourage you perhaps would be to watch really successful channels because their game is so high. They've been doing it for so many years that you might think, okay, I can't create like that. There's value to watching other creators, but I think more learning what you should be doing and evaluating your own content is a little bit more important than watching somebody who's been around for five years who's, who's got his own editor and a professional film crew, because you might be overwhelmed by that. But the most important thing I would tell myself is always have ideas, always be brainstorming new ways to get better. Right, right, right. So just keep brainstorming for new ideas and sort of compare yeah. yourself to people who've been doing it for over 10 years. Yeah. Right. Awesome. So final question, where do you see your channel another, let's say three years? Like what's the, what's the end goal for your YouTube channel? I don't even think I've thought of that one. So we're going to have to think of it together. I don't know if I could think three years ahead. I kind of try to look like one year ahead. I mean, right. I would love to have a million subscribers. And if I could just say what I would love to be seen for, even though it's probably not going to happen, I would love the pe people to come to my channel and think, this guy is going to show me how to travel places and do it the right way, or it's not the right way, do it in a way that's really inspiring and informative. I want people to see my brand as he's going to, show you how to travel. You're going to avoid these mistakes. You're going to see things you didn't think you were going to see. I don't want it so much to be just about me. I want it to be about giving value to viewers. But realistically, it's people come to my channel because, okay, you're visiting New York. You've got to watch this guy. You've got to see his insights. He's going to show you cool places. He's going to teach you cool tricks. I want people to think of my brand in that way. And I'd love to have over a million subscribers by then and have a full-time career just with this and maybe I could branch out to selling guides and video guides and, and I don't know about courses, but something in that nature. I also like to teach. So I would love to do consultations on visiting New York, maybe on how to grow a YouTube channel. That would be pretty cool if I could have a separate business on helping people grow their YouTube channels. I still got to grow mine a little bit more first, I think, but uh, yeah, that would, that would be really nice for three years from now. Awesome. Awesome. The reason I just, I wanted to know the answer to that I just want to know how somebody who's been doing this for a while, thinks about it himself, you know, how you sort of set your goals and sort of have a vision for in the future. But 1 million subscribers is what you're setting out for. We're going to hold you to it. Right, guys? <laughs> okay. Uh, hold me to it, please. 
Yeah, dude. John Bar, it's been an absolute honor having you on the Create Nation podcast. You've set a lot of value bombs for us. I'm going to be writing down notes when I listen to this again. I think, and so are the uh, listeners of uh, Create Nation podcast. Thank you so much for coming on board. And uh, yeah, we hope to see you at one million in one year. I'm going to hold you for that. Ashwin, thank thank you for inviting me. And I thought your questions were extremely thought provoking. And you're doing your viewers a service with this style of podcast. Honestly, I'm a big fan of this. And I think it's going to help people. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much for coming on board and the kind words. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Creator Nation podcast. We'll be bringing you more great content from your favorite creators in the coming weeks. Till then, follow Creator Stack on our social networks to find more cool tidbits about your favorite creators. This is Ashwin Krishnan signing off. Yeah.